This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful but very hot hill country of Texas. I love Texas. And to me, I love it even when it's over 100 degrees. If you don't love 100-degree weather, Texas is going to be hard for you in the summer. But I love it. It is amazing. The food is great. I'm living the dream. And I'm continuing on with 49 days of podcasts in a row, 49 days in a row, celebrating the fall of Roe. In today's show, we have the great John Henry Weston, the founder of LifeSite News, one of the founders of LifeSite News. And we look at LifeSite News over the past 25 years. We look at the collusion between the deep state and the Catholic Church hierarchy. Uh, we talk about Pope Francis and Nancy Pelosi. We talk about transhumanism, the, the Uyghur. And uh, it's a wide-ranging interview, but you are not going to want to miss a minute. All right? So why don't I just get on with the interview? This episode is being brought to you by MyPillow.com. MyPillow.com is where you go for the best pillows, slippers, towels, sheets, bathrobes in the world. Use the code Jones and you get a great big discount. Slippers are now priced better than they have ever been. And uh, that's in the midst of this wild inflation. So go there for a deal and some great slippers. And I wear my slippers out when I go to get my Epoch Times. So I wave at my neighbor. I wave my Epoch Times at them in my slippers. And I'm just trying to inspire envy. They're like, wow, that guy's got great slippers and a great newspaper. The best newspaper in America, Epoch Times. And you can get the digital and print subscription by going to ireadepoch.com. Use the code Jason Jones. And you get the best price going for this wonderful newspaper. And as always, this episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world during the most challenging times. We need you to stand with us. So go to thegreatcampaign.org, give your best one-time gift, become a monthly donor. Check out, if you don't know who we are, if you stumbled across this podcast, go to thegreatcampaign.org, look at what we do. If you're like, whoa, they do all that? Yep. Join the team. We need you. Then you'll be doing all that too over there at thegreatcampaign.org. Now with John Henry Weston, founder of LifeSiteNews.com. It's the Jason Jones Show. John Henry Weston, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Jason, always a great pleasure to be with you. Well, I I don't know where to begin with you because, first of all, LifeSite News is about to celebrate its 25th anniversary, and uh, yeah. that's huge. That's half of the struggle to overturn Roe. LifeSite News was there. Um, but, but personally, or on behalf of my organization, the Vulnerable People Project, and you've been so busy, you probably don't even know, but I want to thank you. Because my organization was pulled into this 
uh, evacuate this Afghanistan catastrophe in the first days of the fall of Afghanistan. And we were being just crushed, not having the resources to serve all of the American citizens, American green card holders, their families, and then those special immigrant visa, those who uh, qualified for SIVs because they were being hunted by the Taliban because they served alongside U.S. Armed Forces. We were we hit a brick wall, and then your team at Life Funder put up, without asking me, a little fundraiser, called me and asked me to approve it, and, and I did, and I made a few little changes, and I thought it might raise $1,000 or something like that. And at the time, it was costing us $75,000 per family to rescue. And I didn't think too much of it. And you raised for us, in a very short period of time, a half a million dollars. And, and LifeSite News and its donors and supporters through creating LifeFunder kept about 300,000 Afghans alive through the winter, helped me evacuate U.S. citizens and their families. And in fact, I was late to this call with you today to keep pushing it back because we're resettling a Christian in hiding in Europe. And I was talking with folks from that government as we were working the process to resettle this Christian into Af- into Europe. I don't want to say which country. Um, I-, I can tell you off the air, but... We're resettling this Afghan Christian young woman who has been hunted because she worked for a USAID organization and she's Christian. And we're still rescuing people because of the donors that you brought us through the Life Funder campaign and then through their continued support. So I don't even think you're aware of that. And I just wanted to thank you very much because you've always been, since I first met you in 2000, LifeSite News has always supported my apostolate and sharing information and introducing us to people, and you, as you've done for countless apostolates. But this year, it was a game changer, and we are the last Western organization operating in Afghanistan, and the only way that was possible was because of LifeSite News and LifeFunder. So, John Henry, I cannot thank you enough. Oh, Jason, it's, it's such a joy for me to hear. It's been an amazing blessing. These past 25 years have just been this is honestly God's work. We don't, we can't take credit for it. It's like, it, not even was there a grand scheme in coming up with doing what we do. We just sort of fell into it. But God has blessed us along the way. And the blessing of Life Funder, Life Petitions, of our videos, it's just piled on with the talent God has brought to us, the amazing donors that God has brought to us. And, and we've been able to use that, and it really privileged them with helping so many good groups, uh, not the least of which is you, your organization. The Vulnerable People Project has helped so many countless people. And it, what I love so much about it is it, it gives the lie to the claim that all oh, those pro-lifers, all they care about is unborn babies. They don't give a damn about anybody else. And then <laughs> out comes Jason Jones with everything. And you're also one of the, what they would call one of the most extreme uh, uh, you know, anti-abortion so-called activists, and yet at the same time, uh, are is doing so much for the rest of people of of all the causes they the cause celebs that they make. It's just it's amazing, and it it just gives great joy in my heart. It's actually very humbling to uh, hear that I've been a small part in in helping in in some way with uh, with your great work as well. No, a huge part, and. 
You know, it's interesting. What we found at the Vulnerable People Project is I assume these people that we were opposing on abortion but claimed to care about embattled ethnic minorities facing genocide, I thought they really did care. And what we discovered is they, they do not care. They're there for the party. They're there for the money. But when the circus leaves town, they leave with it. We saw this in Afghanistan. You know, I tell my team, isn't it strange we never got a penny from federal, the federal government for any projects or programs ever, but never in Afghanistan. And all of these big, fat leftist NGOs that brought in millions and millions of dollars into their organization from the federal government to run programs in Afghanistan, they abandoned their employees. They abandoned their employees to death. And one gentleman that worked for an NGO that promoted abortion messaged us begging for help. And you know, I didn't have to think hard. We were going to help. We're helping everyone that asks. This is our rule. But I made sure that he understood that the reason we were helping him is that our organization was grounded in a fundamental respect for the human person, including the child in the womb. That organization that abandoned him when he became indif- abandoned him when he became inconvenient and no longer profitable. The way that they teach women to ban- abandon their children. So I want you to know that. And uh, John Smirak, you know, told me to send him a box of morning after pills and call it a day. But we rescued this guy. And um, I find that it's pro-lifers, it's conservatives, it's Catholics that show up when it's hard everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the others just leave like the wind. A, a, a big organization, we rescued some of their folks in September. And they asked us to scrub our Catholic identity so they could give us a very large grant. If we could just scrub it from the website. <laughs> and scrub our pro-life stuff. And I said to my team, you know, once we scrubbed our Catholic identity, we would be, it, that that symbolic act, I bet you would be swept out of Afghanistan as fast as other groups. It's our Catholic pro-life identity that has given us the fortitude to fight when things are very dark. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's just it. It's exactly the same with the Who are the ones who pick up the pieces after the abortion, after these women have gone through you know, with all of the clapping and hoopla from the abortion supporters, you know, encouraging, even cajoling women to, to have an abortion. Then when they face, face the devastation, both, both the physical but also mental devastation of uh, having killed their own child, what happens? Who picks up the pieces? Who's there to comfort, to give support? It's actually the same pro-lifers who beg them not to go through it. Once they do, are there to give them solace, to give them encouragement, to get them repentance, and uh, to to bring them along. It, it's it's an incredible thing, and that side needs to be known. And so I thank you for you know what you do to make the other side of the pro life movement known. So John John Henry, I want to take us up thirty thousand feet. You're a journalist. Uh, you're in a, what I believe is the most important apostolate in the world today. I've said that publicly several times. Um, when you look at, no one has a better view of the pro-life movement, at least over the past 25 years, but I'm sure in your work, you have a broad view of the past 50 years and even longer. Tell us, how does the pro-life movement fit in broadly with Catholic action or with, or with Catholics doing works of mercy? How does a pro-life movement plug into that historically? Well, historically, amazingly well. If you recall, it was, John Paul II, who really encouraged the pro-life movement to enter the international uh, forum with the United Nations especially, 
he encouraged polite groups around the world, and uh, the group out of which LifeSite was founded was one of the group, those groups, Campaign Life Coalition. And John Paul II communicated to the pro-life groups around the world to get involved at the United Nations level to fight population control, abortion. He saw the foisting upon a lot of the third world nations. The, you know, if you want to have uh, food aid, if you want to have economic aid from the West, uh, particularly and sadly from, from Canada, from America, from, uh, from Europe, the Western European nations, they had to accept population control measures, contraception, abortion. And now, of course, it's the LGBT agenda as well. But Pope John Paul II really made you know, himself, he, he actually put the papacy right into the pro-life movement. He, uh, he called together the Pontifical Academy for Life. And it was incredible working partnership directly with, uh, you know, pro-lifers. And that went on and on and on for decades. It was so beautiful. But of course, over these last eight, coming up nine years now, we've, we've, we've seen a turnaround to, and I hate to say it, the, the exact opposite. The very people whom Pope John Paul II asked the pro-life movement to come in to fight at the United Nations level have now become the celebrities at the Vatican itself. The whole Pontifical Academy for Life was overturned. In fact, all the members were uh, removed and then some brought back, but only those that wouldn't insist on John Paul II's original vision for pro-life to be part of the Academy for Life. And they were removed. In fact, they formed a second Academy for Life in, in the name of John Paul II because they were collaborators with him who sat at table with him, literally, um, while he would sort of bang the table, and quite literally, you know, he got fierce when he was talking about pro-life and, and about the need to defend life. Uh, if you can remember his great quotes when he came to America, you know, uh, America, defend life was his, his big statement. But, you know, it was incredible then, but it, it actually turned on its head. And it's the most serious uh, thing we've ever seen in, in my history of watching the pro-life movement, um, really, but but really intensely for the last 25 years, the most serious thing we've ever seen. And, and it's interesting how God, in his mercy, um, still makes great victory possible. The overturning of Roe is the greatest victory we've really ever seen. And it comes not, you know, with the working of John Paul II, I think that there was a lot of groundwork laid, but it comes despite what's going on uh, in the Vatican right now. And uh, it's, it's just unreal. It's, it's hard even to fathom how far things have changed. Um, well, isn't you it? Know, at, at LifeSite, yeah, go oh, ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, at LifeSite, we don't like to uh, talk about what people don't say. Because when we're a news agency, we usually focus on what people don't do say, what their actions are. But there are some times when silence speaks so loudly that it, it's, it's, it's news in and of itself. And that was the case after Roe was overturned with the Dobbs decision. Um, there was absolute silence from Pope Francis until just recently. But that silence for so long, for over a week, was just stunning in its, in its, it, was, it spoke louder than anything else could. 
Um, and it was just unbelievable. I know now he's spoken to it because uh, Phil Pillow asked him, you know, uh, the question. But nonetheless, it was unbelievable. But it shows where we're at in, in such a big way. Well, and the silence, and this is where I'm so grateful for LifeSite News. I think a lot of people have been suspect of me because of my commitment to defending the vulnerable because of St. John Paul the Great and because of Evangelium Vitae. When I was a young atheist pro-lifer, I realized that there was the Rwandan genocide, there was the Bosnian genocide, there was a lot happening around the world. And when I was on my college campus, I had started the Pro-Life Student Union and I started speaking about these other issues, the Tiananmen Square Massacre, these other, as these things were unfolding. As a student, I would speak about these and I would have the Pro-Life Student Union do this because they're just there were no other groups doing it. And what repulsed me, I was repulsed from Catholicism as a young atheist because of the seamless garment comparing abortion to like and incommensurate issues. Out of the gate, even as an mm -hmm. atheist, I found that repulsive that you would compare abortion to midnight basketball or what minimum wage should be or how much cheese you get on food stamps. I found this repulsive. Um, but at the same time, I thought that abortion was like incommensurate to abortion. And genocide, democide, and unjust total wars, of course, is like incommensurate to abortion. And I've noticed that at LifeSite News, you talk about silence. LifeSite News has had to become a voice broadly speaking, on issues like incommensurate to abortion. The silence of the Vatican on what's happening to the church in China is deafening. Uh, the silence mm -hmm. of the church on the Uyghur genocide is unbelievable. But even the silence of the church on the, the, the ISIS's war against the Catholic, Catholics in Iraq, not a single statement yeah. came out of the Vatican. Not a single statement. And to this day, I haven't heard the Pope talk about Bishop Zhang Waizhu, the disappearance of priests and seminarians in China. Uh, he seems to be antagonistic to Cardinal Zen. Uh, and it seems like LifeSite News has stepped up to be a loud voice in those places. Was that something that was uncomfortable or was it just natural? No, we need to speak on these things. Well, it was, it was both. I mean, for, for in the beginning, uh, when Pope Francis first came out, we, we didn't recognize right away the severity because uh, literally we didn't watch as uh, Cardinal Daniel stepped out on the balcony with him on day one. That would have set all the alarm bells off, but it was day three. Day three, he praised uh, Cardinal Casper uh, as uh, doing theology on the knees. That we knew was a huge problem, but everybody thought, oh, well, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, yeah, soon thereafter, it became really apparent. It became really apparent to us, unfortunately, very early. But And so people were aghast when we would call things out. And it is uncomfortable. But... Our perspective has always been, um, because we've had to call out many prelates in the past, but it's always been the same. And it's, it's, an, it's a very charitable perspective. It's trying to speak the truth in love. Um, because while the Pope is Pope and a Catholic, obviously, he's still a man. And all men, regardless of their rank in the church or whatever, are subject to judgment. And so it's bad for his own soul to be doing what he's doing. So in speaking out about these things, in charity, in love, we're doing it in love for him. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude that was, it's characteristic of life. It's been one of our mottos, Caritas and Veritate, which of course is an encyclical of Benedict XVI as well. But, you know, it's really an approach that we use all the time in reaching out to people who, abortionists even, we never do so with hate and animosity. We do so with a loving concern for them 
for their souls, particularly, obviously, for the lives that they're taking, for the women that they're harming. But it's also for them. Same thing with our approach to the LGBT uh, community, if you want to call it that. These folks are harming themselves by the sexual lifestyles that they're engaging in, the sexual practices they're engaging in. And we love them enough to tell them, hey, this is damaging your body, your mind, and your soul. We can prove that. But most people are, it's too politically incorrect. It's too, it's not politically expedient for them to do that because they're going to be called haters and bigots. They're going to be shoved off into the corner somewhere. They're going to be regarded as extremists or whatever. But we're willing to take that because we love them enough to tell them that. It's a very famous quote uh, by Penn Jillette, the famous atheist. Um, he was handed a Bible one time by, by a fellow. And uh, people, I guess, expected him to rip the guy to shreds. But he said, you know what? No, he was thankful. Because this guy um, loved him enough to, uh, to reach out to him. In fact, his quote was, how much do you have to hate somebody to know that eternal life is possible or whatever and not tell them that? How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? <laughs> that's that's so that, that, that what Penn Jillette speaks so much against proselytization. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I say not to proselytize. Yeah. You know, and look, I am, you know, I work a lot in the Muslim community and um, I get, I've gotten a lot of fights with some evangelical groups or partners that we've, we've partnered with in our work in Afghanistan because they insist on trying to like aggressively proselytize um, migrants that we have in safe houses in Afghanistan, where if they find out if they're, if mm-hmm. a, a Taliban raids their home and finds a, a Bible app, they're dead. Right. So, mm-hmm. and I argue with mm-hmm. them and they go, don't you care about their eternal salvation? Don't you want them to be Christian? I'm like, I want them to be as Christian as much as they want me to be Muslim. I said, but I, I, I am trying mm-hmm. to, I am, there's no, there's no greater scandal than violence. And so what I'm radically trying to do is love them. I share my articles on mm-hmm. Facebook and social media. Lots of folks are listening to my podcast in those countries. I can see where the downloads are. They know my faith. I said, I'm, but I, I, but of course, I want them to go to heaven. I want to proselytize them, but I do it through acts of love. I'm also a very wordy person. I write a lot. I write books. I write articles. I have a podcast. But yes, we should all order our life. How much must you hate someone? not to want to share their faith with them, but also not to do it lazily. We need to do it thoughtfully. Like a surgeon, you just don't swing an axe into someone's chest because they need heart surgery, right? <laughs> or if they have blood clots, you just don't say that, you, well, you wait, you know? Um, and, and you address exactly. one problem till you address the other problem. Um, so not to proselytize uh, is not to show love. And I always tell folks, I love you more than I worry about what you're thinking about me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I love you exactly. more. And, and you see with Nancy Pelosi, I, there must be either Pope Francis is an atheist or doesn't believe in the real presence or he has no love for Nancy. He's more worried about being loved um, by the establishment than he is concerned about Nancy Pelosi's soul. It's either that one or the other, right? Yeah. It's either he's more concerned about being loved than Nancy Pelosi's eternal destiny or he's just godless. Um, or he doesn't yeah. hold to the church's teachings on the Eucharist. I don't know which is it. Do you, I mean, do you have a do you have a sense of which you think it might be that you're comfortable sharing? Well, this is very interesting. So to unpack this a little, it's it's really important that people understand first the Pope's silence, 
Then, days later, somehow, conveniently, this is, so in the wake of Nancy Pelosi being denied communion by her bishop, Archbishop Corleone, courageously so, after a decade of trying to talk with her about it and so on, but finally, he makes the decision as she's, of course, going nuts trying to advocate for abortions in the face of the looming, uh, you know, overturning of Roe. She's just losing it. You know, she doesn't oppose any abortion anywhere at any time up until birth. And she's promoting it like crazy in, in the most vile and extreme ways and, and politically making it happen. So direct responsibility more than most on the planet. And then foisting abortion on the rest of the planet, by the way, not, not only just in the United States, but of course, you know, promoting it and funding it all overseas, all over the planet. This is Nancy Pelosi, the woman who calls herself Catholic all the time. Now, Cordillona, Salvatore Cordillona is, a, is, if anything, it, like, so patient, so kind. He literally took a decade to come to this decision. So much so that so guys now, like me have been a little skeptical. Of, I've told people, I don't think, oh, he's great. And I'm like, I don't know. Is he great? I don't know. I mean, I'm a judgmental. Exactly. Well, on certain things, I can be a bit hard-headed. So I have to say, like, there were times I was kind of like, eh. Yeah. I, I know. It was, a, it was a long time coming. But anyway, there it is. And then, despite the 10-year delay, so Pope Francis then is interviewed uh, just the other day by Philip Palella from Reuters, and you know he he asks him the question about this. Now Francis finally speaks to him. Now to his credit, he he says something about abortion, which which he said before. He, he says it's illegitimate. It's a, is it a right to eliminate a human life to resolve a problem? And that's the way he ta- he compares it to hiring a hitman. However. On the question, he's asked the question about Pelosi receiving communion. And he actually bashes Archbishop Corleone. And people might not think so, but let me read you his quote. When the church loses its pastoral nature, when a bishop loses his pastoral nature, it causes a political problem. That's all I can say. And now, in the face of being asked about Pelosi being denied... 100% true. I agree, I agree with what he says, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. If the church had but been pastoral in the 70s and 60s, we wouldn't have this political problem. Exactly. Exactly. But he's talking about here, Archbishop Corleone, and talking about him having lost his pastoral, pastoral nature for having denied... Uh, Pelosi, Holy Communion. And how do we know that? Well, because Francis has said it before. So when it comes to interpretation, life is always very careful. We've been doing this 25 years and we study the things in depth, particularly the things around the Pope, because it's so, so serious. If you recall, in 2021, it was in one of those in-flight interviews. Um, and if anybody wants to look it up, September 2021, um, the Pope was asked about denying uh, abortion politicians holy communion he talked about it in the pastoral dimension and he said that without uh, we should be we shouldn't be condemning and he also said he had never denied the eucharist to anyone now of course that goes against what the church's teaching is and it also goes against what the scriptural teaching is it also gives credence to Biden, do you remember about a month, a month and a half ago or so, Biden came back from a visit with the Pope and he said publicly that the Pope told him to go ahead and receive Holy Communion. And so the Vatican didn't comment on that, but it gives a lot, this new thing with Pelosi gives a lot of credence 
to Biden having said that. Nonetheless. But you know what, John Henry? Uh, John so Henry, weird. I believe there are people they don't want to give communion to. I believe it. But those would be those of us who deny the gods of the age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really suspect well, the, they would love to deny communion to people like us. I just, I think that. But the, Well, they did. They did already. If you recall, what did Rome do? They denied communion over the last two and a half years to all those who couldn't receive communion in their hand because they saw that as an assault against the Eucharist. Um, so there's very many Catholics, myself included, who would never receive Holy Communion in the hand. Why? Well, many, many reasons. But if we look back to the Old Testament, do you remember in the Old Testament they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant and uh, it was tipping over, it was, going, it was being driven by a cart and it was tipping over. And a fellow who wasn't a priest, so therefore unable to touch it by God's law, uh, stuck at his hand to balance the thing. He was struck dead by God for having touched it. The, the Bible is very clear, for having touched it. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? It was the Ark built to house the manna from heaven, Moses' staff, and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Nothing in comparison to what the Holy Eucharist is. And here we are asked to put our hands out to receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. And there's a debate on that, sure. But there's tons of Catholics who believe out of respect and love and reverence for our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament, they would never receive Holy Communion in the hands. They were all denied Holy Communion. Yeah, so, so many of us were. Like in my, in my Diocese of Honolulu, uh, you know, we couldn't go to Mass for weeks and weeks, months. And um, I don't even know if there's holy water yet. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's there, very... there, there is now, at least for us, but uh, we, you know, it's been unreal what we've seen. So you're right. You're very right. They're, they do, in, in a way, <laughs> you could say, love to uh, deny some people Holy Communion. Do you think there's now, a it's, connection? It's interesting. Can I ask you this? Do you think there's a connection? I don't want you mm. to lose your point. Finish your point, and then I have a question for you. Yeah, this, the only point is this, the teaching on the denial of Holy Communion is so clear from the very beginning of the church. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.29. Everybody needs to read that. Because you understand not only is the practice of the need to deny Holy Communion in there right from the beginning of the church, but it's also right in there how it's an act of charity. It is, like I said before, caritas and veritate, love and truth. Because what is it when people receive Holy Communion unworthily? 1 Corinthians 11.29. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks judgment or condemnation to himself for not discerning the body of the Lord. Now, so interesting. If they're talking about being pastoral, I'll go back to the words of Pendulette. How much do you have to hate somebody to give them or encourage them to receive Holy Communion unworthily? Because with doing that, they're eating and drinking condemnation to themselves, as St. Paul said. So the most this charitable thing, science. the most charitable thing we can say about Pope Francis, I mean, there's, I guess you can say that the church teach the church has been wrong for two thousand years, going back to the Didache, the very words of Christ. You can you can say the church has been wrong, and we're progressing to a higher plane, or you have to. The most charitable thing you can say is that Pope Francis doesn't actually believe what the church teaches. If you believe he believes what the church teaches, then you have to think 
he is a very uncharitable man. Yeah. Uh, right? That, I mean, that's true. That's the only, the only conclusion. And I would say, you know, the most charitable explanation is he doesn't believe it. And he doesn't believe it and, and has some new kind of theology on it or, or whatever. Um, and that's probably, that's the most logical explanation and the most charitable explanation. Uh, to think it's just political expediency, there's that too, and it's a real possibility. Um, but uh, I, and I think the two sort of work together because it's politically expedient, because it seems to fit with a liberation theology kind of perspective where he comes from, that uh, those things work together and, and they're self-confirming as well. So it's a, it's a dangerous mix, but it is a, a stunning transformation uh, in, in the Pope. And, uh, it's something, it's a revolution, the likes of which the church has never, ever seen in her 2000 year history. There's no comparison. It's much more severe than when, uh, uh, previous popes have had mistresses and children, uh, while being Pope, by the way. No, I say, uh, I would love to wake up and, and, and go to LifeSite News and, um, and see that Pope Francis is invading Florence with his mistress and children in tow. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, finally, good old-fashioned yeah. scandal. Yeah. We can handle this. Yeah. This is okay. This makes sense. So I can go out and defend this publicly. But I, but I cannot yeah. defend disrespecting the Eucharist. So this was the question. Is there a connection? It seems to me that there's a connection between the denial of the real presence in the Eucharist and an unwillingness to defend the vulnerable. So these theologians that we see who deny the Eucharist also want to walk away from the child in the womb are also fine with the CCP deal. Oh, that's something I got to talk to you about. The CCP deal and the betrayal of vulnerable Catholics in China uh, that have no problem being silent on what was happening to Christians and Catholics in churches that had been there since the first century in Iraq with ISIS under the Obama administration. Is there a link between the church's teaching on the Eucharist and a willingness to defend the vulnerable from the child in the womb to children in East Turkestan? It's a very interesting question. Um, and really there is, well, there's a number of things, but there's one thing that unites everything. And I hate to say it. it, it political expediency does run through all of those things. And you can make up excuses for it. You can say, oh, you know, we have to, uh, do what we have to do to uh, work as best we can to keep the faith going even a little bit. But that's nonsense. The primary bishop who worked in China, with China, knew it better than anyone, anyone else, everyone else, Cardinal Zen. He was not only excluded from the negotiations, he wasn't even shown a copy of the secret Vatican deal, which has resulted in hell. For the Chinese Catholics, they continue to be persecuted. And the Falun Gong, and the Muslims, and people that hold the traditional Chinese religious beliefs. The church's silence has Absolutely. led to hell for all of them. And uh, it it's turned upside down. Everything that's going on. And Cardinal Zen, as, as you mentioned, he's been forcibly ignored by Francis. He went specifically to meet the Pope to discuss these things with him. And nothing. And just the other day, the Pope comes out publicly saying that he hopes that this China deal, which is all secret to us, 
is renewed again. Yeah, so, we need to throw a fit. This, how, how do we stop this as lay Catholics? How do we stop this deal from being renewed? How do we get the mainstream media to be incensed that, that the Vatican would sign? And where's the left that they don't like secrecy and deals with powerful entities? Where's the left in the church on this? This poor Chinese <laughs> tennis player was disappeared, right? This young woman who was sexually assaulted. Where's the Me Too movement? A young tennis player just yeah. disappears when she accuses a CCP cadre member of uh, raping her, and then she just vanishes. Yeah. ESPN is silent. Wimbledon allows China to submit athletes. Russia and Ukraine cannot, but China can, huh? Interesting. Um, <laughs> where are the feminists? Where's the left? How come it's just those of us, old-fashioned, stodgy Catholics, that are defend- we're the last defenders of everyone truly vulnerable in the world, and it's a lot of folks. And it really does. It starts to, uh, it's no longer conspiracy theory. <laughs> it's sort of conspiracy fact. The, the, the problem is the, these agendas work together and it's so sickening. And the sickest part of it all is that it's now being worked actively with Pope Francis. And, and you know, our Lord was all about if the world hates me, it will hate you. And that's why some saints are worried about when the world starts to love churchmen. Because, and, and obviously, Pope Francis, on the cover of Rolling Stone and, and various um, newspapers, magazines, etc., including LGBT ones, throughout the world, is being lauded everywhere. And what's going on it is, it, as, um, you know, the great... Um, Archbishop would say uh, there's a collusion between the deep state and the deep church because Vigano has had his finger on the pulse of this ice, you know, from from the beginning, but came out eventually to reveal uh, what's going on in the background with Karen. Well, Vigano needs a food taster. He needs to like stick to peanut butter jelly, <laughs> not even white bread. He just needs to eat peanut butter and jelly right out of newly, you know. Or he needs to hire a, a food taster because he's been extremely courageous. He has net collusions that he points out between the deep state and the deep church. And this has become clear, though. The conspiracy uh, and the level of conspiracy uh, between the global elite that's really come to the fore in, in a way that I thought, you know, we'd never see. But all of a sudden, even the public, the vast majorities can see it now because it's just become too obvious. But that extra level where there's the collusion between the church and state as well uh, is, is just stunning. And you, you see that with this uh, bashing of, uh, you know, Corleone in favor of Nancy Pelosi when it makes no sense. It's, it's impossible that this could happen, and here it is. No, it is impossible. So here is my most charitable look at Pope Francis. You've done a lot of work in Central and South America, Mexico, as I have. And one of the things you discover there is that sometimes the power, the Catholics with power and clout, they're really keen on those issues that are most important to you and me, whether it's traditional marriage, defending marriage, not traditional marriage, defending marriage, defending life. But when it comes to structural economic inequality and, and the folks that live in those countries having a real ability to participate in the economy and in politics, it's not existent. And so what I, I wonder is, does Pope Francis not understand the Anglosphere or Europe, the West, broadly speaking? And so I feel like he might have grown up 
looking. So now in the United States, I wish I could sit to an, sit here and explain to him, Pope Francis, in the United States, those who are advocating for life and marriage are the marginalized that don't have access to power and wealth. But there is really very little structural economic inequality. I mean, I was a high school dropout, teen parent, raised by a 16-year-old. My mom had me when she was 16. Um, and all doors were open to us. We don't have this structural economic inequality that you see in places like Argentina and Venezuela and, you know, south of our border. Do you think that he was maybe raised in that and that's so him, when he kicks against the church, kicks against those who are stakeholders in the church traditionally, it's because he was raised in a, a place where those with power didn't acknowledge the real structural inequality that burdened lay Catholics, burdened Catholics. A, Does that make sense? It's an interesting question. I, or am I just doing yeah, mental gymnastics to try to be charitable to the Pope? Or am I onto something? I don't know. Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, generally he was raised in liberation theology. That, that much is clear because everything he does and says fits the bill to that, to a T. His background does as well. Um, and uh, it's interesting. I don't know enough about his uh, early life to, to comment on that, but I think uh, I think that definitely the, the whole atmosphere of liberation theology breathes exactly that. Um, and uh, anyway, that's, that's where I think he's coming from. By and and what's scary is, I mean, wasn't it liberation is, theology? I mean, it was. It was a ploy of the Soviet Union to absolutely. put fishers in society through the church. It's, it's Marxism. So. And to bring the church, it is. And it, it's being lived out in front of us. In fact, that's one of the things why nobody can recognize Marxism today because we're in the midst of it. We're living it. And and it's hard to recognize when it's what the Even like the gig breathe. economy, things you know. we take for granted. The gig economy comes right out of Karl Marx. You make coffee at night, you know, you make candles during the day. So these people, you know, they're living it, but they, they're slaves. Already, you know, in this society, you can be a slave in a gig economy. It, it's it's unbelievable what we're living right now. But I think, you know, to to bring it back to the general case for life, that's why the overturning of Roe, I find, it's just it's just a gift. It's a gift to me. You know, it was really funny. Do you remember when it was done? It happened on the twenty fourth. And the you know the the twenty fourth is traditionally the day of the feast of, of Saint John the Baptist, but it's also this year was also the feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And think about that: Saint John the Baptist was the saint who, while as a baby in his mom's womb, recognized the other baby in his mom's womb, Jesus, as Mary came to visit. He was sanctified in his mother's womb. He left in his mother's womb because he recognized Christ in utero. And that's the saint on whose feast day we have Roe overturned. And not only that, the decision was released, as, as I've heard, uh, and you can go, please go check it out, but it was released at 1010. And of course, John 1010 is the famous verse from, uh, you know, that all the pro-lifers quote, you know, I've come to give you life uh, and life abundantly. Yeah, you, To me, it's just... You wonder, is that God, God winking us, or was that the Supreme Court, yeah. which is dominated by Catholics <laughs> winking at us? I don't know. Which is it? Well, either either way, it's the same. 
because God uses his own yeah. to, to, you know, be his hands and feet in the world. And I mean, it was either God directly will directly winking at us or yes, God using people and those people being and Supreme it, Court it's justices. The same. How, how does God act most often in the world? Through us, we're called to be his hands and feet. Whenever we go out on the street and you're inspired to smile at that person who's walking by with a dejected face, face, even though you don't feel like smiling and you do it anyway, whenever you pick up something from someone out of love, whenever you, like St. Francis did, hug a, a stranger, even if he's smelly, these are the acts of charity of, of small dying to yourself that are God's actions in the world. We need to step up and do that more. We need to, I'm speaking mostly to myself, by the way. Uh, you know, these are the things, because we are called to be God's hands and beat the world, literally. And so, yeah, I, I think if it was, you know, brilliance on the part of Clarence Thomas, uh, I don't know. But I, in a way, it doesn't matter, because it's still God's step. Yeah, no, and, and think of this. The overturning of Roe v. Wade and the campaign to defend the vulnerable in the United States has been driven by Catholics. Been driven by Catholics. Even as an atheist, I used to joke when I started on a campaign, it would be ninety Catholic, ninety Protestant, ninety Evangelicals, uh, nine Catholics, and me. And at the end of every campaign, there would be seven Catholics, two Evangelicals, and me. And but sort of the long, the backbone, the officer court, the fortitude, the evangelical community, you would see enthusiasms in that community where they would show up in mass and then the enthusiasm would kind of sweep them away. And, but it wasn't until the late 70s with Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop and, and Ronald Reagan um, that you began to hear more of the, and Pat Robertson, the evangelical voice on abortion, but it was the church was there first. And... Um, we were their last as Catholics. And Pope Francis and uh, James Martin and Cardinal Supich, they don't get to take pleasure in this. Isn't it weird? Like, they have the wind at their back. They bow to every idol they see. They are worshipers of the spirit of the age. I'm saying this, not you. I don't want to get you in trouble. But that's how I see it. They worship the gods of the era. And uh, yet they have nothing but losses. And here we are with this victory that they, it's, I pity them. You talked about hatred. When I was a young pro-lifer, I could really be addled by hatred of my political adversaries. But that hatred is really just, I guess, grown into pity. And I was thinking recently, Nietzsche hated Christianity, called us weak and, you know, religion of the weak. And he hated this idea that we pitied people like him. But they are pitiful, right? They are worthy of our pity. James Martin is worthy of our pity. And he could be celebrating this with us and standing for life, but instead, I don't even know what he's been chasing his his entire vocation, but instead he's there pitifully defeated, making bizarre tweets when he should be standing with us in this great moment of victory. Yeah. It, unfortunately, it's, it's no surprise. Uh, you know, particularly men given to the promotion of the homosexual agenda inside the church, it's a very, it's a very deadly thing because at some level, maybe deep down now because it's so buried, but at some level, everybody still knows the sexual activity that homosexuals engage in is harmful for the body. That's just a fact. 
it's just a fact, and it, it's a medical fact. It's also a psychological fact that it's harmful for the mind. Now, you know, the very fact that we're criminalizing, assisting people who want to come out of those lifestyles, who want to rid themselves of this extremely harmful behavior, the fact that we're criminalizing the attempts of psychologists, psychiatrists to assist them, to honor their requests to help them, really shows where we are as a society. But so much worse is the fact that, you know, people like James Martin, I, I hate to call him father of James Martin, but nonetheless, it, you know, are not only supporting that agenda, it, they've gone to the absolute extreme to also support the trans agenda, which to many homosexuals, lesbians and gays, as they call themselves, is even horrific because it, it, it's just another step further where it juices on these children. Like Bill Maher said, Bill Maher still, said at the Gay Pride March in New York City this year, they didn't have one gay man as a grand marshal. It was all trans men who claimed to like women. I don't even know what that is. You're a guy that thinks you're a girl, but you like girls. And those are the grand marshals. And, yeah. and, and, and I'm sure he was prompted by some of his friends. And Bill Maher said, this is absolutely ridiculous. Well, no, it's strange that now we have so many people that are openly celebrating their same-sex attraction who are fighting next to us against trans story. Even trans people, whatever that is. I, I don't even know what to say. Like People with gender dysphoria, trans, they are appalled that there are trans reading to kids. They're like, I, I bet you if you polled people that identified as trans, the majority of them would oppose transgender story hour as absurd. Yeah. So who's pushing this yeah. and why? Yeah. And why can't yeah. the church speak Ooh. out against this ever? Yeah, and in fact, that's another, another place where Pope Francis is the most confusing thing on earth. So... Pope Francis, and this is funny because LifeSite covered it and almost nowhere else on the planet did because it was during all the hocus pocus over Roe and, and what was already going on. But in the same week, Pope Francis actually welcomed a transgender group at the Vatican and had these men dressed, of course, as women. You ever notice that most women never wear skirts anymore, but all these so-called the proper term, I guess, is trans women, they call themselves. But anyway. I think trans women need to fight for their rights to wear blue jeans. <laughs> and they should stop conforming <laughs> to patriarchal gender stereotypical roles. I'm going to get them starting to wear blue yep. jeans. So, I mean, this is the thing. So this is the, um, you have this go on in the Vatican. You have uh, James Martin promoting it like crazy. And Pope Francis actually promoting it. Because obviously the the... What the Pope does uh, in his actions is sometimes much louder than words. And of course, there's photos all over the place of him. Uh, you know, way back in 2015, he already went, welcomed a trans couple to the Vatican. It was uh, two women uh, and, and one, of course, identified as a man who, in the Pope's words, were married and happy. And this was already 2015. When we first released it, nobody actually believed us. And then, believe it or not, in 2016, yes, I think it was day. July 16, 2016, the, the Pope mentioned and it on his one of his flights, and we could revisit our old story, because at the time, people said we made it up, except we had a photo, um, and uh, 
it, it's just so bizarre. But that's that's our reality. It's a reality we've been living out for eight years, and that's the most stunning thing on earth. Uh, it actually supersedes war because it's it is a war. It's a war on a spiritual level with the consequences being hell for the victims. And that's the most serious thing going on on the planet. Well, you think we live in in an era where, yeah, there's war being inflicted on children, the war against love, natural love and eros that blossoms in young people is being crushed by pornography that they're addicted to before they even have, even before they've gone through puberty, they become attracted to it out of curiosity and so imagine the damage of that, that young people, even before puberty, are addicted to pornography. So as they're going through mm-hmm. puberty, as, it's, as puberty is blossoming and, you know, Eros is awake, it should be a waking up in young people as they discover each other. And, and traditionally, Christian society, they would begin to court. That's all being devastated by these app date, dating apps and pornography and then now this gender confusion and gender dysphoria where they're seven-year-olds. I bet if I was seven years old, you'd ask me what I was. I wouldn't even know what that means, right? But I would have said, well, all my mm-hmm. friends are boys. I guess I like boys. <laughs> like, what do you – I don't know. Um, girls yeah. can't throw a yeah. football very well. I'm not playing football with them. Um, so I, I, we just And then you set that, which is in the West. Then the, then the imperialism, which is what it is, this cultural imperialism that is coming from the neoliberals – Around the world, the church should be defending these traditional societies in Central and South America and Asia and Africa, where they have even a traditional cultural respect for life and family and marriage. The church isn't there as the West, neoliberal, the neoliberal West is waging a, a, a war of imperialism. We weren't there for them when we broke Iraq and abandoned Iraq and ISIS was raging. The church was silent. We're silent. I mean, and I think the, the most deafening silence is this terror regime of the CCP, uh, menacing Hong Kong, threatening Taiwan, crushing the church, crushing Falun Gong, crushing Muslims, enslaving 3 million Uyghurs. And there's literally, I have only found one written word from Pope Francis, the Uyghur was written once, and it's buried in like a a litany of a thousand issues. Um, And that's it. I've never heard the word spoken from him. And he's eager to renew this secret deal that the world doesn't know what the secret deal is. Could it be that uh, a mutual friend of ours said to me that this is, our, this is our Lord. We started treating our popes as oracles of wisdom because we had such wonderful popes. Could he said, this is God reminding us that the Pope is not the Oracle of Delphi. And that we needed very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, definitely, we've, we've got to a point where we've, we've had to realize that, uh, you know, what, what's going on here with, with the Pope is, is something to uh, be extremely concerned about. Well, one, one thing that it, I think is really neat today, and perhaps a ray of hope for us, because it's true, it seems like there's devastation everywhere. But, as you said before, you know, we were called, especially those of us who are basically doing our best to be faithful, we were called to live in this time. We also know Romans is a great source of inspiration for me. And, and in Romans 8.28, you know, the, the famous quote, we, and we all know that um, what happens to us is for our own good. All things work for good for those who love God. 
We love God. So all of the hell that we're experiencing in the world, in the church, in our own personal tragic lives sometimes, works for our good. So all those tragedies, if we know that, I was on, um, I do a show called Faith and Reason uh, with Father James Altman, who I think many people know. Um, he said something so interesting to me the other day uh, on the show. He was talking about one of the secrets to joy that is not taught, used to be taught in the church previous to the Second Vatican Council, but not taught today, is it we have to thank God for our adversity. So our hardships, the things that happen to us that really, really suck, we have to thank God for them. And in that thanking, is, 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 is according to Father Altman, is a key to unlocking the joy in the suffering. But there's another verse in Romans that, that I think speaks to us today like none other. And that is um, Romans 5.20 where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that, today, I mean, just to, to make clear, today, sin abounds like never before. A, uh, you know, so many people say, oh, oh, gosh, you know, years ago, uh, you know, 100 years ago, things were much, much, much worse than they are today, and there was much more sin. And just empirically speaking, you can tell them that's complete, utter BS, because there's, so many more people so we had, alive today than there were people alive back in, you know, a hundred years ago. <laughs> Sorry. And there's more people, you know what? There's actually more people who regularly watch porn today than there were people alive, let's say, in 1917. So it's utter baloney that things are worse in the past in terms of where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Sin abounds today like never, ever, ever before. But that also means grace abounds like never, ever before. And we're seeing a lot of movement. We have grace to call upon so we can reach out and be God's hands and feet like, uh, feet like we're supposed to. But think about what we've seen over the last two and a half years. There is an army of people who are ready for the message of the gospel, who are ready for the message of Jesus Christ, who have been shown the corruption of government like nothing else could have. But they're a marginalized people the way a, a lot of us are and always have been. But all of a sudden, they're the newly marginalized. All these folks, like great doctors who tried to save lives uh, of, of now uh, holy memory, Zazelenko, the, the great Jewish doctor who tried to save lives, all of them, people like in that category, who are all shunted to the side because they see the corruption of the, the, the sham that happened around the forced vaccination. And they're just wondering what's left of it. They're really ripe for presenting the truth about Christ in his church. And it's the messiest time. Especially, yeah, I don't you think, time. especially around like mm-hmm. marital love and sex, right? I think that it's going to be shocking to people in 20 years that church is teaching on marriage and the marital act the place of sex in the human family, the theology of the body, it's going to be very attractive mm-hmm. to a very an angry generation that is going to realize that they had love and family ripped from them, snatched from them, never even a possible... I mean, we, you and I, my pornography was the Sears catalog, right? That was it. You got the underwear section. And maybe... Twice in my childhood, someone found a Playboy and every kid in the neighborhood rode their bicycle 30 miles to this garbage 
can <laughs> where the Playboy was, right? And I remember every image in that magazine that I saw as a fifth grader with my Schwinn, neon green Schwinn laying on the ground and all these bikes laying on the ground. We're, you know, I'm 50. I don't feel that old, but the difference between me and anyone that hit puberty when with an iPhone in their hand, I'm, I have more in common with, um, you know, people that lived in uh, ancient Babylon uh, or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or hung out with Socrates than I do with them because their formation, their brain, everything is so radically different. Um, but I think they're going to wake up to what was robbed from them and they're going to long for what the church has to teach on, on love, on the human body, on human sexuality. But unfortunately, it seems like so many in the church hierarchy are embarrassed of what the church has to say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why it really is. Fulton J. Sheen, a, a, great, uh, a great priest that, uh, you know, early on was the first televangelist, believe it or not. He, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen said it is, it will be upon the laity. And the laity is often, is often work in the church, so not the prelates, not the priest. It'll be on the part of Catholics like you and I, like the regular Joe Catholic, to be able to bring these truths to people because they are being left aside. They're being left aside for many reasons. You know, the, the, in, in Europe, you can get arrested for bringing up the truths on human sexuality. Um, but, you know. What about in your country, of Canada? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you can be, I, I'm barely, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really allowed into your country. I'm not kidding you. I have to drive in. Every time I fly, they try to keep me out. They don't tell me why. Yeah. They, they take me into a little yeah. room and they start grilling me. And every time, the last time this happened, I was texting the bishop that was bringing me in and, and they, and then they got a call. They said, we told you not to use your phone. I said, man, am I free to go now? <laughs> and they're like, you're free to go. <laughs> but I'm like, what are they trying to keep me out of this country for? Probably because yeah, now we're about to give a pro-life it, speech. Yeah, it, it's incredible that the cancel culture has been around for a long time, but it's being foisted on so many more, and that I think is is doing us favors in terms of letting people open their eyes and seeing what's actually going on. Uh, you know, for you and I, cancel culture has been has been around for decades, yet now it's so prevalent that people can see it for what it is. So there's opportunity. There's actually real great opportunity. You never in your life have had a better opportunity to share the pro-life message because how many teens have been now, for the first time ever, really, talking seriously about abortion because the overturning of Roe and what it means. And every single teenager is asked the same question. It's always the same question. Oh, what about rape and incest? And for the most part, people don't have answers. And yet activists, we have all the answers. We need to share them now like never before. And my favorite, my all-time favorite answer to that that one is the one that I won't say it in the accent, but, but an African-American lady on a, on a picket line uh, protesting for life says, if you're going to kill somebody, why not the guilty rapist instead of the innocent child? I, and, uh, you know. The best answer I ever heard of was from a Canadian, believe it or not. Believe it or not. Yeah, what's that? His name is Justin Bieber. And I don't know if you heard of him. He's this guy from Canada. He's done okay for himself. His mother's more famous because she made a movie with me called Crescendo. <laughs> but Justin's, uh, Justin said, JB said, in a Rolling Stone interview, 
they assumed he was pro-choice and he said, I'm pro-life. And they were kind of startled. And they go, what about rape and incest? He goes, a baby's a baby. Baby's a baby. Right on, JB. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So there's opportunity. There's real opportunity now, like it never has been before. And so it's really, it's on us in, in some ways to, to pull up our socks and, and do the best we can with the grace we have. Well, you've, you've pulled up before. your socks. I want to wrap it up with this. Um, Life site news. It's your 25th anniversary. And I mean, you were birthed right around the time before most people listening, probably even logged onto the internet. I don't know. I, Went on the internet for the first time in 1995, and I downloaded. You're gonna not gonna believe this. The first thing I did, I went to WorldNet Daily. I discovered the WorldNet Daily site, WND, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know how I found out, but I was looking to get my own copy of Bastiat's the, the Law, which you couldn't find anywhere. And so I downloaded the great libertarian tract. I was a young libertarian, uh, written by this French writer in the 19th century, The Law by Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat. That was the first thing I did on the internet is I, I printed that down, which is, I think is kind of cool. But so what year were you founded? So we were 1997. We, we officially went online and, uh, I had been sending out by email since 95. So that's, and so yeah, I, I didn't have my first yeah. email account until 1995. So this is at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was no Google. It was Netscape. <laughs> you remember the search engine was Alta Vista at the time. Alta that was it. Vista. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so what were your highlights? Yep. What were, if you were to go over the past 25 years, um, well, before you give us your highlights, can you tell us about the founding of it? How hard was it? Did people get what you were doing? Uh, how did you attract donors yeah, to support such a I, new idea? As I said, there was, yeah, there was no, there was no grant plan. I was at, since 95 at the behest of the pro-life group in Canada called Campaign Life Coalition, compiling a daily news brief, usually of only about five articles a day every day that just summarize the most important happenings around the world related to life and family. And uh, by 97, the group wanted to have a website. Steve Jelsevac, who is the co-founder of LifeSite, was tasked with developing a website for this pro-life group. And, you know, he hired out a programmer and so on. And uh, someone suggested back then, why don't you put John Henry's news thing on the, on the site? And, of course, URLs being what they were back then, he couldn't find one that was really good. So he, he settled on life site and thought, oh, well, we'll, we'll change it later. Um, Wait a second. That, I, that to me, is the perfect name. What, 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 what would be a better name <laughs> than life site? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, back then we weren't all that enthralled with it. But anyway, that was our really the, the founding. So no grant plan, no just basically just doing what we're doing. That progressed and as we um you know just kept doing what we were doing um and very early on the church uh, reporting became a very serious thing because it was actually in 2000 that we found that the march of women at the time which was during their millennium uh celebration they they decided march of women is a pro-abortion organization which uh, of course goes under the moniker march of women but they are they promote abortion they promote lesbianism, etc. But, you know, the church in the U.S., the whole Bishop's Conference in the U.S., of course, boycotted anything to do with them. But we found that the uh, Canadian Bishop's Conference was actually funding them. And uh, that launched us on a big, not only investigation, but, but uh, reporting on them publicly, which 
it created a massive stir because a good number of bishops in Canada disagreed with their own funding of the March of Women, and uh, the vast majority of them supported it. And uh, just so many bizarre happenings. That was that was really what launched us on a now more was that international the, what was scale the march? That became international news. What was the march that you guys covered with Human Life International, and they were throwing bottles and feces at nuns in Canada? Do you remember that? Yes, that that was a pro life that was a pro life uh, meeting that HLI HLI used to run these pro life meetings all over the world, and at one of those meetings in Montreal, the, the pro boards just went crazy. Um, and uh, this was that was the one where they smashed they put um, smashed beer bottles into condoms and whipped them at the children uh, as they were processing out of the out of the conference. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite uh, it was quite something. That was. Uh, that was 95, I believe. So for people um, who are thinking the radical Israel. violence of the left is something new, those of us, or cancel culture is new, I like how you put it, we've been having to deal with this violent extremism for a very long time, and now, because the cancer has grown, now more and more people are bumping into it. But those of us that have been advocating for life have been battling these, these thugs um, driven by a, the culture of death for a very long time. Yeah. In terms of memories, I'd have to say my all-time favorite life site story, it, it's, it's so typically a God thing. Um, what happened was in El Salvador, you might remember this, Jason, it, the, the New York Times did a piece on El Salvador, and they called it Pro-Life Nation, a huge headline, and it was all about a fake story. It was Fake news, as, as Trump would call it. It was a reporter from the Times, whose name was Jack Hitt, went down to El Salvador and interviewed a woman who was jailed for 30 years for having had an abortion, he said, that was the same as any woman in the United States could have. But because she was in so-called pro-life nation, she was in jail for 30 years and she had other little kids at home. And what a tragedy. And very interesting because we were called by a pro-life activist in El Salvador. And she said to us, look, that is total BS. There was a court case here. They did a forensic exam on the body of the baby. The baby's body was found in a box under this woman's bed. The baby had breathed. She strangled the baby. And yes, that's why she's in jail for murder. Now, um, we, she had given us the court ruling and documents, so that we just basically published everything. And of course, I called the New York Times to um, ask, and never got anywhere. Well, after we published the story, I get a call from the pum- public ombudsman at the New York Times, and this is what I think is so beautiful. Very often at Life that you push uh, or publish contact information for those concerned in the story. And we published, of course, the contact info for the New York Times. And a lot of our readers who are just beautiful activists everywhere, of course, called and badgered the New York Times. So I got a call from the public ombudsman at the Times. Who's, he's in the Times, he writes in the Times, but he's not associated with the Times per se. And he called to say, is what you wrote true? I said, uh, and he said, is this an actual court decision uh, in El Salvador? And I said, yes, it is. He said, can I have a notif- uh, notarized copy? And I was like, oh, boy. But don't really call him back. I called down to our friend in the pro-life activist 
in El Salvador. And she said, look, our court systems here are open and free. You can walk in off the street and request any decision you want. So I hung up with her and called back in the New York Times yeah, ombudsman. And I told him that. And he said, yeah, yeah, we already did that. We went in. We got the ruling. It's, it's legit. We're going to publish it. He told me this. The editors at the time, when confronted with the truth, refused to retract or correct their story. So he was going to publish in the New York Times that we caught them uh, out on a lie, and they refused to correct. And he did. Unbelievable. The so the New York Times yeah, and published an article Times. about their own writers refusing to retract an untrue story. That's right. I the give them credit. And then, wow. Of course, wow. Yeah, but that was the public ombudsman. And so he wasn't actually, but, but he did it nonetheless. And then the U.S. right-wing media went crazy. Because the gray old lady was found lying, and they just had a field. I remember Michelle Malkin went crazy. Uh, it was just everybody went nuts with the story. But the greatest part of the story wasn't that Lifesight got, you know, kudos in the New York Times. The greatest part of the story was this. And I kid you not, it's the most beautiful thing. For three days running, the front pages of the newspapers in El Salvador were celebrating the fact that they were indeed a pro-life nation, were proud of it, and had caught the New York Times in a bloody, disgusting lie. And it, it was so beautiful to see that nation affirmed in their pro-life beliefs. It was just incredible. Because of something and you yeah, that's, started that's in 1995. Because you started with that newsletter in 1995 that built to that day. You know, I would always get excited when I would see LifeSite News, and I'm sure I didn't see every time, linked to Drudge, which used to be a great place for pro-life stories to break through. How many times have you been on Drudge Report? Do you even know? Or A, a good number of times. Yeah, a good number of times. But I don't know how many, no. But one thing, and this really speaks to willingness to do what you have to do, even if it hurts. Um, many people knew that uh, Drudge, not not Drudge, was um, and homosexual, and and uh, he basically told us he would not run a thing again because we would write on that issue as well. Wow! But it didn't deter us because it's the truth, and it didn't deter us because we act in love. And we said so many times at LifeSite, Steve Jelcevic, of course, the co-founder of LifeSite. He's been in the movement much longer than I, but we're both reverts and having left faith and so on. But one of the things we always did was, despite whatever we might lose, even if LifeSite might crumble, we're not going to not tell the truth. And so when we go down the road of reporting on LGBT issues, when we go down the road of reporting on church issues, which for us, I mean, you know, most of our donors at LifeSite are, are Catholics. And it created a lot of controversy, especially early on when we were reporting about Pope Francis. But we, this, the same line we've repeated to one another over and over and over again. Yeah, it might shut us down, but that's God's will too. We're going to report the truth because you have to. But have and you, that's been with us now for 25 years. And I'm sure, I mean, you get this sick, there are those stories where you get that sick feeling in your stomach, or I'm sure I, as an activist, there are those times where I have to publish an article against Bishop Barron or somebody, and I know, oh, here goes my biggest donors right out the window. 
Yeah. But I feel like I <laughs> yeah. have I have to say this. But what what happens yeah. is that ball always bounces in our favor. Every time I've said this is the end of my career, but I have to do it, and I believe it. Like I really believe. Like I don't know how many times you yeah. guys have probably had that, where you're like, if I we write the story, it's our end. But why exist if yeah. we don't do the hard things? Why why even be around? Exactly. And one of the hardest things is not even so much donors as friends. Um, mm. You know, we've had all sorts of heroic friends in the pro-life movement, you know, heroes, priests, heroes who, who've done so much for pro-life. But because it was Pope Francis, um, they basically disavow us and, and call us out and try and tell us that, you know, we're doing the wrong thing and so on and so forth. But you can't, you know, we still love, I, 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 I respect, I have so many friends and heroes, even. but, uh, you know, they don't see it the way we see it. They, they think that there can't be such criticism. The, the fact is though, for the laity, especially the laity that had to live through the sexual abuse crisis, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that calling out these things and even publicly, even by canon law, our right to do so, in fact, our, our duty to do so is there. And it's there in a big way. And having seen what happened with the silence uh, on sexual abuse, it's the same with every other type of abuse because, believe it or not, the spiritual abuse is can be seen in a way as worse than the sexual abuse crisis because with one, you're dealing with the absolute horror to body and, and mind. But with the spiritual abuse crisis, you're dealing with the abuse of the soul, which is eternal. And, uh, yeah, we're dealing with tough things, but it's, um, it's been a policy and, and no policy has been our, our way of doing things has been such that, you know, we're going to stick to it. And because it's God's, because LifeSite really is not our design and our big thing. It's not, it really has been God's from the beginning. There's a kind of a detachment from any kind of so-called ownership of it to call or anything like that. Such that, you know, we're doing what we feel called to do. And if a good Lord says enough, then, you know, we, we can face that too. We always know he'll take care of us, whatever it is. Okay, last question. I think I said that three times already. This is the last question. I, I could interview for 20 hours, have a list of questions, but this is the last question. Twenty In the next 25 years, what new threats to human dignity and the human person do you see with the rise of transhumanism and gender dysphoria, gender ideology, where, where, are the, where are the new threats coming from that we, those of us who are, I always say we're not anti-abortion activists, we're anthropologists. We're just trying to promote the truth about the human person and work to have human beings treated as they should be treated. Um, so what new threats to the human person do you see barreling down? The Well, you hit it on the head when you, you talked about transhumanism because that notion of the homo deus, man as, man as God, rather than, you know, God in man, and, and it's, it's really prevalent. The ancient, uh, you know, temptation of Adam and Eve, you will be like unto God, is so real today, um, both on a, on a universal level, in that everybody thinks they, they can, you know, are, are, they can be their own God. But there's actually a, a real level of um, the elite who really think that they are like God um, and want 
to you know bring the world's population down to a nice manageable number for themselves. Like uh, Yuval Noah Harari, one of the great so-called great thinkers of the World Economic Forum, says, you know, what are we going to do with all these useless people? Um, yeah, it's unbelievable. This is a real thing coming, and it, it's it's coming in a big way. Their solution, by the way, of of uh, drugs and video games is already here. It's already being done and carried out. But this... The metaverse. Go live in the, the metaverse. The metaverse but, You'll come out of the metaverse, eat some crickets, and then go back in the metaverse where you belong. <laughs> That's right. But there's one other thing coming. Because we have for so long been about, you know, rejecting God, there is no God, live as an atheist, it's wonderful, God is a crutch. That won't last. The, the human being is made for a relationship with the divine. And the evil out there knows that. The end game, which I honestly believe we're approaching, won't be that. It won't be atheism. It will be a relationship, a spiritual relationship. But it will be one where of, of a type of antichrist that posits himself as Christ. You know, if you look at Revelation, um, what Christ says in Matthew 24, there's a lot of things that he predicts, but over and over and over and over again, he predicts the Antichrist, the coming of a false Christ. And you just watch. In the next little while, we will see a type of one world religion. In fact, they, they, they just are building the one world religion center. That, I believe, is the looming threat that will sort of, it will really eclipse all others. Because that will be the greatest danger mankind has ever faced. Yeah, I imagine there's no transcendent escape from the gods of the city. It's a descent to really the pre-revelation societies where the powers, the temporal powers, were the representatives of heaven, and there was no escape for you. I was, I was reading um, a biography of a, a Japanese author who had committed Harry Carey, worshipped the emperor. And um, but in his early life, it talks about how just crying at the thought of of hurting the emperor's feelings or the emperor feeling betrayed, and and that's where we're going, right? Where the, the gods of the city, they want to be the god. Who is it that wrote that the dialectic is to move us from was to move us from a Christian, a Catholic society to a Protestant society, from Protestant to deist, from deist to agnostic, agnostic to atheist, atheist to Luciferian, Luciferian to satanic. That's the sort of the progression of society. Hmm. And um, where would we be in that progression right now? I think openly Luciferian. Amazing. Well, see, seeing, seeing the, with COVID and the mass psychosis, or the, the mass formation psychosis, that's very interesting. If you, if you look into that literature at all, you, you look into the scapegoating that is going on of all the unvaccinated um, and how the driving force is actually to eliminate, even violently uh, eliminate the those who don't believe, the, the unbelievers, the new unbelievers. Um, that's already where we're at. Right now, it's focused only on this um, kind of, you know, uh, fear of, of, of COVID and the need to treat it and the, the, the unbelievers who aren't taking the vaccine who are responsible really for everything bad. But imagine when that becomes a spiritual thing. 
because that 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 is where we're headed. The, the, the savior complex is so ready for a savior right now, um, both from COVID, from the health crises, and from war. Because you know, if anybody doesn't know it yet, world war is on the brink. Uh, what's going on right now with uh, Russia Ukraine is is like the prelude to uh, what's coming globally. Because once we have once we have the famine that's coming, that I think should be obvious to everybody. Um, and ensuing an impossible world war, um, the ability for someone to step in as a savior will be like never before. And that, that I think, um, is, is the greatest that we're facing. And I, I believe in it. You know, and on that note with even Ukraine, I'm really grateful for Life Site News existing because often trying to ground my activism in Catholic teaching, my positions appear quirky. They definitely don't fit narratives, um, blaring narratives on different sides of conflicts. So we have been at the Vulnerable People Project working and funding shelters, funding medical teams. We just purchased a refrigerated truck to deliver insulin. While from the very beginning of the invasion, we have been advocating for negotiated peace, which went against the sort of NATO propaganda. And we exp- and I wrote um, at the, over the stream outlining how... Um, NATO is is partially responsible for the hell that Ukraine is suffering now. Well, now this is all becoming obvious. You'd have to be really hard-headed not to understand that, as Millie said, we don't want victory. We want want a quagmire. They want to kill as many Russians as possible using as many Ukrainians as it takes. And LifeSite News has been a place I've been allowed to, through my fund rate, through, through LifeFunder and through my writing, like in my article that just came out this week, expressed nuanced positions grounded in the Catholic faith that there really is no other home for guys like me to write. I have life site news you know, and really I have the stream and that's it. On, on that note, again, with the question of Ukraine, it's very interesting because often those who would dare to posit that NATO was at fault here, not solely Russia, that Suggestion brings the charge with it of, oh my gosh, you're just a Russian shill. You are, you don't give a don't darn about Ukraine and all the suffering of people under. Yet it's exactly the same as with the pro life argument. Because while you suggest that, while you dare to suggest you go against the grain, at the same time, who's running? the most effective outreach to help the refugees? Who's the one out there saving refugees? You are. And it's the same with the pro-life movement. Who are the ones advocating that abortion harms women and hurt and we need to save babies' lives? We are. And then who are the ones out there to help them? We are as well. It's, it's so beautiful to see that on both sides, um, you're there, and therefore the charge of being, oh, just a Russian show, or you hate the Greek train, or whatever, can't stick because you're doing more than anyone else. You know, I, I love, John Henry, what I love is I just got a nasty email this week from someone saying that I've been demonizing Russia and lying about Russia because one of our vans was bombed by Russia, which is, in fact, it was. I get called a Putin shill. I get called. I get called a CIA operative. I get called a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. <laughs> you know, I get, I'm like, wow. 
I am a, I'm really all over the place. I am either. I am a really loose cannon or everyone around me is crazy. And I'm thinking that maybe everyone else is crazy because I do. We just consistently serve the vulnerable period. Even in Afghanistan, we have different communities saying, don't help that community. Don't help that. Like, no, no, no. We're the vulnerable people project, not the vulnerable Christian project. Not the vulnerable Pashtun or vulnerable Hazara or vulnerable Chaldean or Assyrian. We want to order, our, our apostolate is ordered to advocating for the scapegoat, those who have been abandoned for concern. If other people are covering it, if other people are, are there defending these communities, they're going to do a better job than us. So why would we even be there? <clears throat> we go where there's literally no one else. Um, and, it, and it can be a very, very lonely place. But I think the pro-life movement is what taught me to do that. You know, it's just stand with the vulnerable when no one else is there. And yeah, if the world starts, if the world starts celebrating us, we maybe should pause and ask ourselves, why am I being celebrated right now? Yep. Yep, indeed. Well, Jason, there's very little danger of that. <laughs> hey, we won the Toronto yeah. Film Festival with Bella. You know, I should I should bring yes, my trophy yes. when I try to get into the yes, country yes. and they don't let me in. I'll just go, hey, I won the Toronto Film Festival. Will you let me in, please? And you guys were there for us. You guys have been there for all of our movies. Do you remember when Bella came out? Do you remember being meeting all oh, the guys yes. and being a part of that? Yeah, beautiful stuff. And, it, you know, we, we can reintroduce it to our kids because these are, you know, films, actual good films that they can watch. And uh, it just, it's just great to have known part of it in, in being with it and, and helping you with it. But today it's just great stuff to show our kids and that's really lacking today. So thank you for that as well. We have some more. We're really, I'm focusing as I'm laying out our film projects over the next several years, we're really focused on promoting Eros, like making films that celebrate the awakening of love in young people, which has been robbed from them. And that's going to be a grave scandal that pushes them into confusion over gender and marriage. And, and then they're going to look back and have lived very sorrowful lives. So I, th- I thought we need to tell stories that, um, that celebrate love, romantic love awakening in, in young people. And there needs to be more films uh, by Catholics on that. Com- so that's what we're focusing on. Yeah, the truth and beauty, the real truth and beauty of human sexuality. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a story left untold. Well, John Henry, one of the things I'm expecting to happen in the next 25 years is I'm going to have to do a life funder campaign for the evacuation and resettlement of Canadian Catholics as they are fleeing persecution. <laughs> do you see that day coming anytime soon? Well, unfortunately, yes. And um, I, I just wish the United States would, would uh, let us in. We're as, as unvaccinated Canadians still barred by President Biden. And uh, it's, it's unbelievable for us. So trying to get refugee status, uh, at least currently, is, is uh, very difficult indeed. Well, it, it, it shouldn't, it sh- this should make you feel a little better. Can you believe in the chaos surrounding the fall of Afghanistan? They were asking for um, COVID tests within the past 72 hours for Afghans or they were trying to get across the border into Pakistan. They were asking them for valid um, COVID tests. The same thing happened when we were helping to get Ukrainian women out of Ukraine into other countries. They needed, um, 
they needed proof of COVID tests. And I, I'll tell you offline how we handled that situation, but it was, it's crazy. It's just, but it's a religion. It's an expression of piety and people want to be pious. Mm -hmm. They want to subordinate themselves to a higher power. It's something that's in us. We should make that our creator. They, they want to show symbols of solidarity with the community, not only the community in which we live in, in time, but across time that's why i wear my scapular don't go anywhere without it it's not only my expression of my love of our lady and she's her son but also it's it's a an outward symbol of my belonging to a community i started wearing my scapular before i came in the church just uh, and i wore it in a real public way because it was during the scandal the sex abuse scandal and catholics felt a lot of shame and i was an anti-catholic bigot entering the church after years of persecuting it. And I thought, I want to wear an outward I want Catholics to see me and go, oh, he's a Catholic. Um, so that's what we're seeing <laughs> with these people. They want to wear their mask. They're excited to show you their yeah. their um, updated sacraments card. Hey, have you gotten your most recent sacrament? How many sacraments do we have now? Wow. There's four boosters. Each booster is a new sacrament. And um, they want to do this for something I think that's really beautiful. They want to belong to a community and show they're willing to sacrifice and and share burdens for the community. But unfortunately, they don't realize that in going along with this, they're burdening the community. They're burdening others, and they're, yeah. it's destroying solidarity. Um, but that's how the devil works, right? He plays. And so what you're saying is the Antichrist, by creating this hunger, by not allowing us um, to know God, to denying us access to the sacraments or not valuing the sacraments, um, they will. They will. They they're going to have a substitute waiting for us. And we'll absolutely. And, and we'll, you notice the sacrifice that's built in that these vaccines, so-called, are made on the backs of aborted babies, and that everyone. I, I remember talking with Bishop Schneider before uh, the these vaccines really even came out. And we were talking about them and how they were made on the backs of aborted babies. And he talked to me about how this would taint the whole world and the church with the time of abortion. And he actually said to me at the time, this is before anything, that would these be mandated? He believed that they would become the mark of the beast. And that, that's, that's a very interesting uh, ways of thinking about it. It's really startling when he, when he said that. And, and in light of what has happened, uh, really truly does make it uh, quite something because the devil always wants to imitate, uh, you know, what, what Christ has done. And so there has to be uh, blood sacrifice as well. And if you look into, uh, please go to like that news to, to look into the origins, the abortion tainted nature of these vaccines, you'll find some incredibly startling things. And uh, initially, when we did the first interview with probably the world's most uh, red researcher on this, uh, people said, oh, nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. And then we, we pulled out uh, also the, the, the proof from medical journals about how these vaccines were created, how vaccine, how the, the, the aborted fetal cell lines were created, and uh, what that entails. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it to your readers to go check it out on my site. Um, it's, it's really vivisection, not, not, not even plainly called abortion. But uh, I mean, they don't hide the fact. HEK is right there, human embryonic kidney. 
Yet, when you post yeah. this on, on Facebook, which I think you have been permanently banned from Facebook. No, not Facebook, YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Where have you been banned permanently? Yeah, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And it was deadly for us in that, uh, you know, they, they just canceled us on YouTube when we had a massive following. We had over 315,000 subscribers on YouTube. Every video we released had minimally 50,000 views. 8.2 million was, I think, our highest video. And then lots in the two and three million range and, and million was not a rarity but uh you know they just cut us off right right at the knees it was unreal but nonetheless again took that in stride with the will of the lord uh we fight it of course but um you know we're we've we've gone to other platforms but everybody just needs to come direct to lifesightnews.com we have a whole video section where all our videos will be regardless of whether or not uh, we're canceled by any particular platform. So, yeah. And, and I guess stuff. that the, the, the opportunity that comes from that stumbling block is now you ha it's forcing all of us to create a way of communicating that they cannot cancel. And so as we're beginning, no, to, exactly. re as we're beginning to rebuild our reach, um, I mean, this podcast exists because Mario, this friend of mine who was a GoPro at the time, he would listen to my FaceTime lives. I would get 10,000, 15,000 views in my FaceTime lives as soon as I would go on. This is like seven, eight years ago. And then I would just rant. I'd be like driving around Hawaii in my pickup truck ranting or at the boxing gym ranting. And uh, it went from like overnight 10,000 people watching me live to like six. And I thought either everyone found me boring all at the same time. <laughs> Something weird's yeah. going on. Well, like I didn't care. It wasn't like built into the structure of my apostolate or anything like that. It was just a little frustrating. But this guy, Mario, flies to D.C. to meet with me. He shows up at an event. He said, I loved your FaceTime lives. And I, need, I want to start a podcast for you. And so this podcast hmm. exists because Facebook was censoring me. And now we're like wow. regularly in the top 200. If I do one show a week, we'll be in the 200. If I do two shows a week, we'll be in the top 100 podcasts in America, in the world, in America. So I owe Facebook their um, <laughs> censorship leading to this. And then now you're building an, a, a reach that, um, that, that no one can ever take away from you. So, so the best thing for people to do, what I do is I wake up, I go to LifeSite News and Epoch Times, first thing. I used to go to Drudge. I don't go to Drudge anymore other than to look at and shake my head. Um, so what's the best way for people to, is it just go to the website directly or do you like them to follow you anywhere in particular? Oh, absolutely. LifeSiteNews.com direct all the time. We are on certain places, but there's no replacement because at LifeSiteNews.com, you will always get us. You'll always be able to access what's there. You can sign up for our emails direct. Um, and that's a, actually a good foolproof plan. Believe it or not, uh, during the with the January 6th thing, we found out that even they, yes, they go after your personal bank account, but even they go after your URL. And that gets really deadly. Uh, there are wow. ways, you know, to, to deal with that. But the, the difficulty is, and that's why I would encourage people, if you can, sign up to our emails. You'll get notice this is of all Orwellian. Of news where it is. They can, yeah, so you, we, you need our email. So go to lifesitenews.com, bookmark it, but give them your the email button. because yeah. if they ever try to swipe your URL from, from you, I guess there are, wow. Yeah, well, They've we have to think it. about all of we, this. We saw that happen, and so that's a real need. 
um, you know, there, there are other things that you can do to, to prepare for that, but you need direct communications with all of your people because the, the possibility of losing your URL even is real. Um, so, so, uh, yeah, we're, we're thinking of all sorts of creative ways of, of, um, getting around all that it is. The amount of cyber attacks that we've had to deal with is unreal. And we've got some of the most talented programmers in the world today. And uh, we're actually going to be re- releasing some of those stats um, soon, just so that people can see what goes on behind the scenes, the, the type and, and amount of attacks that we get. Um, it's it's really phenomenal. Well, covering and, uh, the I'm, CCP the way I'm you so do. I'm proud of our team. So. You should be. Have you... And when Facebook, uh, they sent me an email a couple of months, I guess two months ago now, that that my Facebook account has been attacked by a state actor. I don't know if you heard about that. They had to email everybody, and I was one of the 50,000 journalists and activists that they had to email. You probably were too. Um, But I have to imagine you have, like, states like China and others waging a war on you. I mean, have you you had any sign of that? Absolutely. According to our programmers, uh, who, who, as I said, I mean, they're some of the best. Um, they've actually told us the kind of level of attack that went on here is really a governmental type of level. Because what, what happened in, in some instances where we did get shut down for a day once and, and so on was just the, the amount of, um, it's hard for me to explain because I'm not a programmer by any means. Um, but the amount of, of, of uh, things they had to go through to achieve the breaking of our site that one time was uh, described to me as a government level attack. So it was, uh, yeah, we've <laughs> faced that, have the sort of evidence for it. We're going to be releasing some of that just, just so that people get a glimpse uh, behind the scenes of the insanity that we deal with. It's, it's, uh, it's quite interesting, but we've been blessed in amazing ways with, with people that we really shouldn't have as a, as a small organization. Um, and, uh, I'm so proud of our team. They're amazing men and women who fight for faith, life, family, and freedom and, and really give it their all. And they're, they're doing so for, you know, not the recognition and the the remuneration they get anywhere else in the world, because these are talented, talented people who have really given their lives to serve. And, uh, basically they're serving Christ, uh, and, uh, and seeing this, this, this work that we do, this mission that we do, as the way that they've been called to uh, to serve. Well, it's been exciting for me. We've been friends since 2000, and I've been able to watch his LifeSite News has grown into um, not only the most important news site for information on culture of life issues, but really for, like you said, life, faith, and freedom. And it's because you're picking up the balls that other people dropped, or they're too heavy for other people to carry. So I can't thank you enough. God bless you, my friend. And, look, you. and I'll be seeing you in August. Me, you, and Jim Caviezel are going to hang out. <laughs> God willing, if we can cross the border. Please ask oh, no. You may not be able to go <laughs> yeah. there. Yep. We're going to see what happens. So, Well, I live in know, Texas. You can just go to Mexico. I'll meet you at the border. I'll, I'll run you across. <laughs> it's wide open. <laughs> it's wide open. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Amazing. I, and that's what we're doing with. So, yeah. Oh, I did not even think of, of that. So, well, I'm yeah. going to be there with Jim Caviezel at your 25th anniversary event as the MC. But the yeah. question is, well, you, we don't know if you will be there. Yes, but Jim Caviezel indeed will be there. And there'll be 
a ton of LifeSite heroes there. So please go. If, if any of your listeners want to attend our 25th Gale anniversary, Naples, Florida at the Florida Grand Resort, August 17th, go to gala25.lifesitenews.com for any more information, tickets, whatever. Uh, listen to Jim Caviezel speak in live because you won't be able to get that anywhere else. He doesn't do a lot of that. And, um, you courageous know, he's, man, he's got an just, incredible message. just a courageous guy. Again, that steps Absolutely. on third rail after third rail that he doesn't have to. He just does. Exactly. So, so he's a Hollywood star. Who would think <laughs> he is a Hollywood star and, and, and one of the greatest actors of all time in the history of cinema. And um, Absolutely. so I'm looking forward to seeing Jim Caviezel and to seeing all your supporters, the great LifeSite News uh, staff and team. And I'm going to pray that the United States changes those rules anytime soon. Is there any, is there any hope of that? Well, we'll see what happens. They, we're we're going to give it a shot. And uh, if, if we don't get let in, well, that'll be, uh, you know, the Lord's will too. So, uh, but we are going to give it a shot. So I oh. hope to see you there. Well, one way or the other, I'm going to see you soon, brother. I'm going to land this plane. Thank you for being on the Jason Jones Show. God bless you, my friend. Okay, Bye-bye. Bless. All right, everybody. That was John Henry Weston, founder of LifeSite News. I'm going to have LifeSite News, the subscription link in the show notes. I'm also going to have my most recent article uh, there in the show notes. Make sure that you send them your email. That's frightening that they can just snatch your domain Orwell would go, what? No, that's not Orwellian. That's beyond Orwellian. Just really, really unbelievable. I hope I'm doing a good job interviewing all these great pro-life leaders because they have so much information, and I'm kind of like looking at them overwhelmed and drawing it out. I've got a bunch of emails in the past episodes. People are loving them. I feel very insecure in that I'm not – there's just they have so much to give. Um, and I, I could do 48 – I could do 49 shows in a row with John Henry. Um, and I already just took almost two hours of the guy's life. So um, follow his podcast. Also, you can find that at LifeSite News and check out everything in the show notes. This episode is being brought to you by Epoch Times. Now, every morning, I'm not kidding you, the first two places I go, LifeSite News and Epoch Times. And if you go to iReadEpoch.com and use the code Jason Jones, you get the best price they have going for the digital and print subscription, which is what I get. Not just the digital. you got to get the digital and the print. And this episode is also being brought to you by MyPillow.com. Mike has a great sale right now on his slippers. The best price ever. Gas is more expensive than ever. You might just want to walk around everywhere. And you're going to impress people if you're walking around in Mike Lindell's MyPillow slippers. I can tell you that. Hey, I'm just going to walk today. Gas is too expensive. i got a great deal on these. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the code Jones. Remember, it's Jones for the slippers and the pillows. Jason Jones for the newspaper. And as always, this episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world when it is most challenging. From the child in the womb to the Uyghur child in a concentration camp in Chinese-occupied East Turkestan, across Western Ukraine, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, we're there but we need you to be there with us. So when you go to thegreatcampaign.org and become a monthly donor, this is what allows us to support people. And I am so grateful. This show is our number one source of new donors. And I am so grateful to everyone who has been donating. 
This podcast really blew up right before Afghanistan. And if not for Life Funder, LifeSite News and this podcast, we would, have, we would have not been able to help all of these folks. There was no budget for this, no program for this, no staff for this in Afghanistan. But thanks to you, our monthly donors and donors, and Life Funder, we were able to stand, stand with these folks and save tens of thousands of lives. All right? Until next time, and by next time I mean tomorrow, as we continue with 49 days in a row celebrating Roe, the falling of Roe, it's the Jason Jones Show. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh,